Hello everyone and welcome to Changing Conversations with me, Billy Burke. And me, Sarah Philp. We're really glad you've joined us on this podcast. This podcast is all about changing conversation. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. We come alive when we talk about what's important to us and it's this that has the potential to guide us into new and different ways of being and offer the potential for great things. In this podcast, we want to explore the big questions and the small questions. It's a place for thinking and conversations that hold the potential for change. You will hear from us as well as some of our guests. We would love to hear from you and for you to get involved. You can also follow us on Twitter at Changing Conversations. James, thanks very much for joining us on Changing Conversations. Delighted that you could find the time. How are you doing this evening? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Feeling better after two weeks of that horrendous cold people have been getting. Um, that was uh, that was pretty brutal, but feeling better now, certainly. So yeah, glad to be here. But heavy cold, but not COVID. Heavy cold, not COVID. Numerous uh, false positive LFT results, mm. um, followed by negative PCRs and negative other brands of LFT results which is not really particularly reassuring, I have to say. But um, no, just that horrendous cold and it was for a couple of weeks there. So my commiserations to anyone who's got it now. Yeah, well, I mean, as, as we speak, we're just running up to Halloween and it's certainly not, uh, you know, the phases of the pandemic don't seem to get any easier, do they? No. Um, but I'm glad you're feeling well this evening. Um, a a well-known name, a well-known uh, Twitter entity and, and author and various other things, James, uh, to people in the education world in Scotland. Um, but maybe just get you to introduce yourself and, and tell us about what you do. Yeah, uh, so um, James McEnany, I am a college lecturer these days and a journalist as well as what most people would know me for is probably the journalism side of things. Um, so the last few years I've been focused on investigating a lot to do with Scottish education um a lot of the stats and information around education kind of narratives a lot of it started with um standardized testing as well and i also look into things in general um like you know, government transparency issues i'm quite fond of um but before that i was a high school teacher so i taught over on the isle of Arran, which is where i was sent as a probationer um having kicked the box i was sent over uh, sent over there um and absolutely, absolutely loved it. I was an English teacher. Um, I, had, I came back to the mainland, I think it was 2014, been the college lecturer since then. Um, and as well as the, the sort of intermittent journalism, um, I've recently written a book called Class Rules, The Truth About Scottish Schools, which is yep. um, out now. It is indeed. It's, it's sitting on my bedside table. Um, <laughs> and I know lots of people have already dug into it, seen lots of positive feedback. Um, so let's let's start from there. Obviously, you've you've got quite a, a unique and interesting take in Scottish education, as well as you know being an educationalist yourself. So tell us a bit about the book. Tell us what what motivated you. How did it come about? First of all, so the book, um, the idea had been kind of floating about for a while, and then when the, the first lockdown started, that was going to be my my big achievements, my thing that I was going to that was going to be my my self improvement, you know. Um, I, could, I could always make sour though, so I figured I had to do something else, and I had this idea I could, I could do this book. But what it had really come from was just the more I investigated things, and the more I, it wasn't even the investigation, it was the more I tried to write about Scottish education, the more frustrated I found that I was getting. 
because it didn't really matter like how much information I, I could pull together or what kind of interest in FOI I could submit um, because I felt there was never really the space to really get into anything. And I say that as something, a lot of my work goes out on um, a website called The Ferret, which is a, an absolutely yeah. fantastic, um, you know, cooperative journalism platform. And The Ferret is, to my mind, the best platform in Scotland for this kind of stuff. And I love working for them. And even they are still kind of feeling, like, you know, you have 1,500 words to play with sometimes, and mm. it's still nothing like enough, you know. And one of the big issues for me as well was feeling that the more you look to all this kind of stuff, the more that I, the more I realised that to understand it, it really had to all be pulled together. So you can't understand narratives around closing the attainment gap if you don't also understand things like development of CFE um, or standardised testing debacle or the absolute you know chaos of what happened in the summer of 2020 with exams. It's all part of the same story, you know. Um, so I, I, and I think you, you sort of come to realise that actually without something like that, without at least some attempts to pull that kind of story together, there are lots and lots of people who I think quite understandably find all the information around Scottish education just impenetrable. The the curricular documents are bad enough for us. You know I mean? Like, have you ever actually sat and read all the experiences and outcomes? Have you ever put yourself through that? You know, has any teacher ever been willing to put themselves through that? Um, you, you read through SQA documents, for example, you know, and you read 10 different documents that you're fairly sure is the same document 10 times and stuff like that, because you know, we make no sense. And that's us, that's professionals in that yeah. position, you know. The statistics don't make a damn bit of sense either, you know. Um, so you become, or I became quite frustrated with all of that, this sense that this is meant to be this hugely important issue. Judge me on my record and all that kind of stuff, you know. Mm. And yet it simply wasn't possible for people to hold anyone to account because nobody had ever that I could see even sort of tried to, to bring the kind of key strands of it all together for people and present it in a, in a way that was digestible for them. Um, so that was, that was the idea. Although I wouldn't, you know, I don't want to give the impression that, you know, therefore I kind of set out to write um, some, you know, um, completely straight down the line, um, entirely unbiased analysis of the numbers of Scottish education. People, I think, who know me know the angles that I come from on education and on politics. And the book is is part of that as well. You know, I'm not going to shy away from that. It's it's not some um, you know completely objective um, academic analysis or anything or anything like that. I have analysed the numbers, but I'm presenting that as part of a narrative for what I think could be the ways to improve Scottish education and build on some of the big problems, which include the fact that we simply refuse to be honest about some of the big picture issues. One of which, probably the big one, the under cuts everything else remains that you know the word that we're not allowed to say which is class you know we can have all sorts of euphemisms for it we can talk about attainment gaps and all sorts of variations and all of that um we can do bits of research into you know educational inequality that gather up all sorts of things i saw one that's happening with one of the ricks just now you know and it looks very interesting but you find yourself asking like how much more do you need we know what the issue is we've known for a long time what the issue is we just don't talk enough about the fact that it's the, the issue in education so often comes down to the intersection between the things that happen in the classroom and the things that happen as a result of social class. Yeah. And if there's a way to pull those two things together, I think that's the, the, the angle um, for understanding and therefore for improving a lot of Scottish education. So that ended up sort of being the main 
or, or that was the goal at least for like yeah. the main thread through the book. That's that's what I'm what I'm trying to do with it, I suppose. Did Did you set off with that idea that class was going to be in the title? Uh, it wasn't in the title at first. The subtitle was the original title, and the right. truth about Scottish schools was was the bit that was always there, because um, I always felt like that was what I was that was what I was trying to do. You know, like for people who are not either you know education professionals and even some of them who are or you know data geeks like me who just love the numbers and stuff like that you know a lot of the stuff that they see that you know the, um, that gives them in theory gives them information about scottish education is actually misleading them you know huge swathes of official, of official, official stats are pretty openly misleading um a, a very very large proportion of media coverage of scottish education is you know if you're going to be really, really kind, you'd say a lot of it's not brilliant, right? But a fair chunk of it actually goes beyond that and I think crosses the line um, to the point where it becomes um, misinformation at points as well. So th that was the main thing all the time, but there is no point in my teaching career, there is no point really at any time that I can remember when I would have looked at the issues around you know, Scottish education and not seen them as a class issue. This is again to do with you know politics as well. Um, I am probably the best way to describe my view, and you know, I'm I'm very much a structuralist. Like, I, I don't I think any any attempt to understand um, you know people or outcomes or any of that kind of stuff. You know, I think you need to understand the structures within which people are operating and the impacts that those structures and those conventions and cultures, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, have on them. And the obvious one with that is. Is social class. It is the structure that has this enormous impact on education, and everybody who works in education knows that. Everybody who works in education knows that socioeconomics. That frankly, you know, mum and dad's bank balance is the biggest determinant of educational outcomes. No matter what we do, no matter how many individual pupils we help beat those odds, the pattern doesn't change. The game doesn't change. Um, and I think that's something that is so important to understand, you know, it's so, so vital, because if you're not going to be honest about that, then you're never going to change anything. We should, that's something we really need to be much more upfront about. So that was kind of how the, the play on the title ended up um, kind of in there, I suppose. That's a, that's a, great, that's a great title. I think, you think so many issues in Scottish society are, are related to that, you know, uh, drug and alcohol issues. <laughs> yeah. And and it's all it's all interconnected because this, this is the thing like and I sort of say this in the book as well. But like when people ask me what kind of you know big picture things you know what big thing would you change to improve like education outcomes in Scotland? What would you do to to close the attainment gap and stuff like that? And like I know the answers that they want. They want answers that are to do with you know what kind of policy change would you make in terms of how we teach reading and stuff like that. Actually, mm. I think the big answers are things like fix the housing crisis in Scotland. You know, um, I think the issues are things like public transport. I think the issues are things like zero hours contracts and people trapped in jobs don't pay them enough to to live well, because those are the things that actually, if you would correct them, you, I think you'd see a bigger impact in education that comes in pretty much anything you ever did in schools. And that's because these the, the things that drive these outcomes in schools are class experiences. You know, that's what this is. This is a system that has if you're you know if you've been re the really kind interpretation maybe the best interpretation is that this is a system that has 
you know, failed to undo um, all of the, the class-based inequality that exists in Scotland. But, re you know, the education system can't, can't do that. It can mitigate against some of them, but it can't do a damn thing about the overarching structures, you know. Mm. Um, and I think that it's something that, you know, we've, we've just wasted. I, I, my argument would be that um, up, you know, since the, not the election, the other one just before it, I'd say we've wasted that entire time. I think the entire narrative around, you know, more data, standardised testing, closing the gap, test, all that kind of stuff, I think we spent five, six years completely wasting our time for largely political reasons rather than educational reasons. Um, and I think in all of that time, we just got further and further away from realising that actually, you know, one of the things I say in the book is if you want to improve people's experiences of education, you need to improve their lives. That's what that's how you do it, you know. Um, and I think when, and people don't find that hard to understand the thing. When you talk to people about it, people get that. You know, like if you, you know, you've got two kids and one of them is going home to a nice warm house and you know, a nice full meal and parents who can sit with them at night and go through their work with them, etc. And somebody else is going home to, you know, a cold house with no lecky in the meter sort of thing, you know, no, no heating and maybe not an awful lot of food there. Mum and Danny are both out because they're both having to work because there's no other time when they can get shift and stuff like that. And this kid's looking after stuff. People don't find it hard to understand how that would obviously have an impact when you talk about those kids. The issue that people don't like, I think, is that when you scale that up, to the society level and you start to understand how massive that impact must be like how many kids we are talking about in those situations um but it's a growing number as you know yeah exactly you know it's not, it's not as if it's like it's, it's dwindling numbers it's numbers that you know for the last say 10 years or so pretty much since the introduction of cfe not because of cfe but at the same set of time as cfe those numbers have been increasing all the time, you know, so unsurprisingly, things have been getting harder and harder. Well, of course, they've been getting harder and harder. They've been getting harder and harder for the people living their lives. So, of course, you see that difficulty then manifest itself in schools. That's that's pretty obvious, I think. Um, but it does need sometimes that reminder to to view it in, in structural terms, because otherwise it's easy to get sucked into the whole, ah, yes, but if individuals just work hard enough, they can overcome their circumstances, you know, the later parts stuff. Um, and there will always be some that can, but a few outliers don't change, don't change your trends, you know, don't change the overall picture. And actually, if you if it's if they are cynically misused, then those outliers can actually be used to minimise the challenges faced by everybody else because of the way in which some people would choose to pre to present that sort of success. So these are all things to be guarded against, and that's why I'm always so keen to kind of try and put things like you know, social class at the heart of the conversation whenever possible. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're quite comfortable in education now, particularly during the pandemic and beyond, and talking about the the link between well-being and learning. Yeah. You know, you're, you're not going to learn at your best if you're coming from that kind of home situation that you've described, or you're sitting no. in a classroom full of fear because you're full of trauma, etc. So we, at one kind of intellectual level, we, we know that. And probably the, the best classrooms, the best schools, the best learning environments, it, it's got that kind of human element. But more or less, you know, what you're saying is poverty-related attainment gap. It's it's bigger than that. It's just about poverty. Yeah, that that is the whole. That is every time I hear a politician use it, you know, poverty-related attainment gap and stuff like that. I, I, I just I hate it. I hate it all. I hate all the euphemisms. 
Um, I don't want to hear about poverty-related attainment gaps. I mean, you're talking about poverty. You're talking about kids being hungry. You're talking yep. about class. So talk about class. You know, what's, what's the problem with talking about it in terms of class? Part of the issue with it, it becomes that a lot of the, and, you know, happens up, this would be me as well, but a lot of the people involved in the conversation um, in, in Scottish education, and certainly all the people who are in charge of anything, um, fight, don't like conversations about class because it feels to them, I, I suspect, maybe a bit like they are on the wrong side of that conversation. Mm. Um, and there's no getting away from that because, it, you know, it, it's why it's important to confront, you know, like Scottish education, in terms of the people delivering Scottish education, is overwhelmingly middle class, massively middle class. And that makes it, I think, more important to actually explicitly think about and talk about what the reality of, of class manifestations are for pupils and it becomes especially important once you get to the level of the sort of people who are making any sort of decisions and running anything because these are all people who are on 60 70 80 90 100 grand a year and if you're going to talk about if you're going to talk about issues in terms of like class impacts then ultimately what we're talking about is, is class conflict right um shouldn't, we shouldn't shy away from that either so if that's what we're talking about in terms of say like education outcomes as well, and it's a case, it's a question of, you know, these kind of competing classes, it is actually quite a helpful way to look at it because it's easier to understand, I think, in that context that the people who run Scottish education, all of them, um, are people who are who are and have been very well served by the status quo. Their class situation is one in which keeping things as they are suits them just fine, you know. People who run Scottish education are essentially, you know, the, the you know, the, the Lib Dems of the world. You know, um, I can see some things are wrong, but I'm quite comfortable. It's that sort of idea. So, like, it's it, it's important to be straight about that because you need to be honest about the fact that the people who, you know, it's it's a, it's not just a question of what are you doing. It's a question of who's in the room when decisions are being made, and who's being listened to when those decisions are being made, and who's being represented when they're being made. You know, if all you've got is a room full of very comfortable middle, upper middle class people, then you will have decisions that are made not just by, but also for middle class people. You know, so this is it, all the way through these kind of discussions. There are always these these threads where you start to kind of understand the ways in which people are being say, treated by the system. So often come back to our, I suppose, failure to, to properly um, build into our thinking the impact of social class on not just on education but as i said before you know its impact across the board on all sorts of issues which then wash back into education as well it's what makes education so complicated i suppose you know that like issues like housing and stuff like that are all areas where class manifests in and of itself but then once it does that they are issues that then affect the way in which class manifests inside education so it becomes incredibly important to not just talk about the the school-based policies and not just focus everything on that because if you do that you're only ever looking at this tiny 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 little part of the picture and it's a part of the picture that the education system has already spent we've had what a hundred odd years of of a formal public education system now the thing is like we're actually quite good at this thing about using the education system to mitigate the impacts of social class scotland's is that by, by the sort of measures used in PISA, for example, Scotland does really, really well under these measures. The link between 
um, socioeconomic background and educational performance is not as strong in Scotland as it is in lots and lots of countries. You know, we're, we're, we've worked really hard at finding ways to, to do all this kind of stuff. There, I just, there isn't this infinite, endless capacity to do more and more. And, you know, there, there, there's more capacity for more longer lasting, more effective solutions, I often think, outside of the education system um, on that kind of basis. Yeah. Well, in, in the meantime, there's a, a lot of public funds spent to try and address some of these issues, uh, you know, with the attainment challenge for a number of years, etc. Um, I think what, what you, you're recognising there as well, you might have individual schools or pockets of schools or maybe even a local authority doing some really good work, making some impact on the numbers, on the data. You're, you're not seeing that at sort of whole system level. No, and I'd say that's, that, that's what I was saying, you know, like you might get every, every year, you know, like we know that kids who grew up in the richest areas of Scotland are more likely to leave school with five hires than those from the poorest are to leave with one. Now that's not to say that there are no kids from the poorest areas leaving school with five A's and the hires. Of course there are, right? Yeah. But outliers and indiv you know, individuals and, and, and that don't change the, the big structural pictures at all. Mm. And it's not to say there aren't ways to improve things. You know, it's not impossible that, you know, a, a school or a group of schools working together develops an approach to a particular, um, maybe a particular challenge, a particular um, aspect of the curriculum, a particular um, issue with their, with their pupils, whatever it happens to be, you know. Um, and maybe that's something that, that makes a big difference and, and can be scaled up. But how many of those things can really be scaled up in that in that sort of fashion? And even once you do and you do try and scale it up, the, the issue you then have is this of like, you know, everybody benefiting from it. And yeah, that's great. But see if you want to close the attainment gap, then some of the things you have to do need to be not equally felt. You know, and that's another thing nobody really wants to be honest about that either. But like if you actually want to close this this idea, we're going to raise attainment for everyone and close the gap so everyone's performance will keep going up and the poor kids they'll start doing really really well too and there'll be no i mean was always bollocks right nobody ever bought that did they you know let's let's dig into that then and you mentioned 2020 right so go back to 2020 <laughs> what we saw was the you know the cancellation of exams and the teachers submitted their judgment of what our young people had displayed all year um and those weren't awarded initially, and then they were. And yeah. Because, the, uh, you know, what we saw is that if the kids that benefited, if we could put it like that, from the cancellation of exams and a judgment based on performance throughout the year were those from the most social, economic, deprived backgrounds. Yeah. And that kind, that kind of makes sense to me because they're probably the kids um, from the backgrounds that you've described as one example. So they're not studying in a warm room, you know, they don't have a tutor twice a week. Yeah. So we had that happen in 2020. What happens now then? <laughs> so, um, I mean, I still don't really think that we have ever been honest about what 2020 was. I'm, st I still, I'm, I'm still not convinced that people have really accepted what 2020 showed us. Um, there's still this kind of idea 
that somehow 2020 was like, oh my God, look what was look what was was imposed that year, and it, it wasn't really that. 2020 was about showing us what always happens, as you say. You know, this is actually about sh showing us that under our normal system, it's apparently completely fair. Um, kids in the poorest areas do a lot worse than kids in the richest areas, and you, that might be some people's view of fairness. Um, because the rich kids are apparently better than the poor kids, but no one's ever going to convince me that the rich kids are the ones who are like, the most resilient and the hardest working, for example, right? There's just, <laughs> there's just, there's just absolutely no Great. way. Um, I think what we really saw in 2020 was the fundamental reality of the system, and it's this. Our exam system, its primary function is not to award um, anything to young people, it's not to recognize anyone's learning. It's not to recognize their achievement. It's not for any of that. The primary function of our exam system is rationing. That is the thing, right? Our exam system exists to ration places and primarily, and, and the national consciousness that is primarily uh, manifested by rationing places at university. Mm -hmm. The reason for this is actually, I think, very simple. Under the status, under the, the status quo, under the system as it is, you know, now, um, the middle classes have this massive inbuilt advantage out of the system. And if that were taken away, if all of a sudden, lots and lots and lots of working class kids started walking out of school with the same kind of qualifications as lots and lots and lots of middle class kids, then those middle class kids would all of a sudden be competing with those other kids for those university places that we still, broadly speaking, regard as being their right. You know, these middle class kids who grow up in nice areas with parents who pay for tours and stuff like that, that these university places to go and do law and medicine and all this kind of stuff, they're supposed to be theirs. And that if we did anything that meant that those middle-class kids have to compete with working-class kids in anything like a level playing field, that that would somehow be completely unacceptable. Because when you're used to privilege, um, fairness feels like oppression. It's that thing, isn't it? You know? um, and I think that's actually a thing that we should be honest about. That's why we do what we do. That's why we have a system grading on a curve. That's why we decide that a certain number, our starting point for our exam system is that a certain number of people must fail every year, even though we know that the burden of failure falls massively disproportionately on the poorest, poorest pupils. It's a ludicrous, obviously unfair, classist system that's designed to keep things exactly as they are. And there's no way to do anything about that unless we're going to be honest about it. And unless we're going to be honest about the fact that delivering some sort of equality for the, and we're not talking about small numbers of pupils here every single year. See these pupils who come from these, we're not, we're not talking about a few hundred kids or anything, right? If we're going to deliver any sort of form of equality for literally thousands and thousands and thousands of kids a year, it's going to mean taking something away from somewhere else. And nobody wants to have that conversation. Mm. Nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to talk about the fact that if you get into that kind of boat, then what does that mean for university admissions? Yeah. Does that mean universities depend much, much, much more on things like entry exams or interviewing, which, which is likely to be just as unfair? 
or does it mean that? I mean, I know what I would do. I would do. I mean, let's say this is. I mean, this is never happening, right? Feel free to to suggest that in any group you ever find yourself in, I'd dish out university places by lottery. Is what I would do. Um, I would basically, I'd, I'd say a, a minimal level that people need to have for entry, and then after that, everybody would 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 put in their applications, and if there were only three hundred places and there were three thousand applicants, then I'd pick three hundred by lottery. Is what I would do. And at that point, I'm well aware middle class Scotland would go ballistic because their kids are losing out in this unfair system. Well, the system's been unfair forever. So um, and if it has to be unfair in some sort of way, you might as well make it the fairest kind of unfair possible. So yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would ask about things like that. Do you give out university places? Once you, once you get to a point where you know that everyone has achieved a, a level of intellect or hard work, competency, whatever you want to call it, um, given that we can't predict the future after that, and given that we know that the grades that we think we're using to predict the future these days about who are the most the most promising students, given that we know a lot of the time they've got those grades because of mum and dad's bank balance. And again, right, I will say this now, I am one of those people, right? I walked out of high school with five A's and my hires having done very, very little work for them. I walked out with another couple of advanced hires after sixth year. I strolled into an English degree at Strathclyde Unit. I think he did four A's and a B for, you know? Um, and I don't come from like, you know, super affluent middle-class Scotland. <coughs> Sorry, so like my mum and dad is split up. My brother is, 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 is disabled. Um, We'd have probably, I suppose, been at maybe toward the bottom end of the kind of groups that really benefit from the system. But I am definitely part of those groups that really benefit from the system. Um, and that's, again, something, you know, that we just need to be a bit more honest about. That the notion that, you know, they've got five A's, so they're the best, they're the best candidate to go and be a doctor or something like that. It's, it's, you can't even call it wishful thinking. Like, because we, we know it isn't really true, <laughs> um, but we need, it, so we need some sort of way to ration access to higher education, to further education, to forms of employment. But we have remained, we've remained tied to a system for doing that that was developed a long time before the world that we currently live in. Of course. And I don't think it meets the demands of the world that we currently live in at all. Yeah. I mean, the there is an accusation against uh, the secondary system. What ultimately do we do? We're the selection process for universities. Yeah. We do their job for them. Yeah. Now, young people write personal statements. Um, a lot of effort goes into that as to how many are actually read in any detail. Uh, I think, you know, you've described yourself. Universities want to cream off the best grades. Now, I, I benefited from, uh, I suppose, widening access before widening access was a thing. You know, grew, right. grew up um, in a, a distinctly, a, you know, low socioeconomic working class background um, in Paisley, and I, I happened to be quite good at learning. That's what that's what rescued me, to be honest, and, and provided that social mobility. But I was amazed by how few people um, at university in the mid nineties I saw from a similar background, and I'm still not sure how diverse it is. And in terms of, you mentioned earlier about, you know, the leadership within the system. Another aspect we're not uh, too great on, and this is this is a topic of various other discussions on this podcast, is we don't we don't see the population that, that we represent in the, the leadership within schools. Exactly. Um, leadership within the system, we're predominantly white. 
Um, so that there are there are various parts of society that it, in Scotland I, I think we talk well about wanting to be progressive, wanting to be inclusive, um, and wanting to be socially just, but it's probably not mirrored at certain levels in the system. Yeah. Um, the the lack of diversity just in the in the broader teaching profession uh, should be a, a much bigger scandal than it is because um, there's really no excuse for it. And the thing about it that it is, and it's actually one of the, the chapters in the book about this, but it's that thing like, how may, and again, I mean, it depends which part of the country you're looking at, admittedly the numbers kind of change quite a lot, but like yeah. in, Gla in Glasgow, a very large minority of pupils in Glasgow come from minority ethnic backgrounds, and a significant chunk of them could go all the way through their education without ever seeing a single non-white face at the front of their classroom. Yep. And that is a, a, a terrible, terrible indictment um, of the state of Scottish education. There's no excuse for that. And it's not just that it's it's terrible in that regard in terms of like, you know, the, the young people who say, you know, I can't be what I can't see, who, who, need to, who need to see themselves reflected in, of all the professions that kids deserve to see themselves reflected within. You know, for the love of God, surely the teaching professions at the top of that list, you know. But from the other side of it, how much is the teaching professional losing out on this? Mm -hmm. You know, how many people that could, you know, that could be absolutely extraordinary teachers, that could be amazing head teachers, that could, that could change the system, you know? How many of them aren't teachers because they've looked at teaching They've looked at our, let's, you know, let's look at ourselves on, an incredibly undiverse profession and decided that that kind of environment isn't for them. It's a, it's a, a question worth asking. Um, and it's, it's and, you know, like, and lots of people love to believe that Scotland is this really, um, really sort of forward thinking and radical country is the thing. And I mean, I, I, I suppose it's possible um, that, we, you know, uh, the people who say that and myself just live in two like completely different countries entirely. Um, but it's not something I've ever really seen any evidence of. I don't think Scotland's a particularly forward thinking, left wing, radical, progressive, whatever you want to call it, country. I think the predominant feature of Scottish culture uh, and Scottish society is conservatism. From my perspective, small c conservatism, admittedly, but um, to me, Scotland is looks you know by nature an inherently conservative country and that's one of these things that again you know you look at the the lack of diversity in the in the teaching profession and you ask yourself like you know is it ever is that going to be changed without some sort of really um focused radical action probably not but this is a country that isn't really very comfortable with that and we'd rather, you know, well, just, you know, it's particularly that kind of social conservatism, you know, um, and we'll just kind of let things tick over and, you know, we'll not, not talk too much about it. But it's how, that's, how, <coughs> that's how you get into messes with this one, you know, um, from refusing to confront things. Um, so, and, you know, you see it, yes, in lack of diversity and the leadership and teaching profession. I would argue you see it in the lack of class diversity. You see it even in little things like, the teaching profession is overwhelmingly um, female, but most of the people who run secondary schools are men. And there's no mathematical reasoning for this. Like there's no explaining away that stat with anything other than 
something about the system seems to have disproportionately put men in charge of classrooms that women are running, for example, you know. Um, but then you can look at it the other way as well. The, 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 the huge problem of the lack of men that go into primary teaching. You know, it's not just an issue of looking and saying, well, the demographics of secondary schools suggest there should be more women in charge. Well, that's correct. The overall demographics of teaching um, tell us that there's nothing like enough men, particularly at the primary level. And there are questions to ask about that. Why don't men enter primary teaching? Probably because it's seen as lower status work, even though as somebody who now teaches in FE and previously taught as a secondary school, I would every single day say primary teaching is significantly harder than anything I've ever done. Maybe. I also think that um, if if we're honest, you know, and, and you're working in, in FE, you've worked in secondary, a, a huge difference um, is made in primary school. We know uh, about the yeah. difference in early years. So if it has that status, if it's that important, um, why is it not the go-to? Yeah, that's actually, that's why I would, um, the reason I would increase the school starting age is, is is linked to all of that. I, I see that as, I mean, it's a good policy on its own, but I see it as a catalyst for various other things. Mm. So given that we know that the earlier you intervene, the bigger the impact you're going to have, it seems to make more sense. Like, and again, you know, this is one of these things that it sounds awful, I'm sure, if you're a parent who's got a kid who's like 16, 17 years old, right? But if somebody gave me a billion pounds, and said, you know, spend that in the education system um, to get, you know, to, to help as many people as possible to make the biggest impact. I don't think I'd spend a penny of it on anybody over 14, you know, um, because I think it's too late at that stage for that kind of in, that injection to make much of a difference to them individually. I'd spend all the early years. I would develop a national kindergarten system. I would have it run from the ages of, I mean, a, a universal system up to the age of seven, basically. Um, I would have primary school, as we understand it, starting at, at that age. And partly the reason I would do that is because, well, firstly, if you think about the nursery sector and the early years sector and the way it operates, it's basically on a sort of privatised voucher system. We, can you imagine the reaction if somebody stood up in Parliament and suggested that we reconstitute the school system on that basis, on that model? Can you imagine the, the, the justified outrage? because people would see that as a massive attack on the principles of universal education. So why do we tolerate it for the early years that we know is hugely important? And why do we tolerate a system that has people so badly underpaid as they are in the early years sector as well? So by developing the early years sector, I think that could be a massive catalyst for, for change in Scottish education. Because I think you would, if education can do anything about the sorts of um, class-based differences that exist, it stands to reason you'll have the biggest impact at the youngest age. So therefore, you want to focus on what you can do at those early stages, the early years and probably early primary school. And by establishing a kindergarten system and increasing the school start, the formal school starting age to seven, and having that sort of universalized early year system with a fully recognized and trained and paid profession running it the same way as we have with schools, the same way as we have with, sec with primary and secondary schools, you know. Um, I think that's, if there's one big policy that could do something, it's that. Yeah. That's the thing in Scotland, I think. And well, 
well established in, in other countries, particularly in Scandinavia. Yeah. Um, but talking about reform that's actually on the table at the moment, I wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, and knowing you, James, I don't need to say don't hold back here, right? So, <laughs> uh, so we, we have reform work at the moment um, in light of the OECD report, looking the start of it, looking at national agencies, really, you know, a, a recognition that we need to better connect curriculum and assessment and the aspirations we want for our young people, better align how we measure. And we've already spent a chunk of time talking about the examination system and what it produces traditionally. Yep. Right. What would you like to see? What do you think that the, the profession that children, families need from any reform in the sort of short to medium long term? What would you like to see? I... I don't think there's any serious reform on the table, just now, is my honest view. I, the, the Scottish Government announced that the, that the SQA be abolished the day the OECD review was published. Basically, like, as it was published, right? Now, with my, allow me to, to, to place on my media hat for a moment and explain that for you, right? That is not about taking the report extremely seriously and looking for the biggest impact in it, that is about controlling the media narrative around the report and frankly, spiking some of the really critical stuff that was in there. Because some of the stuff in that report was not only incredibly cutting, although it was written in standard OECD edu babble, um, it was not only incredibly cutting in a general sense for the system, but it created a pretty severe problem for the politician who said, I want to be judged on this and then spent five years doing things. The OECD said, this stuff's all be a disaster. Mm. So the fact that the government announced it was going to do the, the, the SQA thing, which is like mentioned in passing in the report, you know, like it's not as if that's some big major part of it, probably because everybody knows the SQA has been an absolute disaster, right? But leaving that, leaving that aside, this is something that you, you push hard early on because that's where you want the attention. That's why you've already got Ken, you're lined up to be announced the next day. It's why I have nothing I should say, I've, I've never met Ken, you have nothing against Ken, you at all, he's very well respected, but it is why you put someone like Ken, you in charge. It's why you get somebody, basically one of the bricks right from the heart of the establishment and put them in charge. It's about trying to limit reform, not about trying to engage with it. So I think that's the first thing. Um, I'll be happy to prove him wrong. But I don't see this offering much more than a bit of a cosmetic change to the SQA Education Scotland. I can see a future where we have the Scottish Curricular and Qualifications Authority, for example, run out of the same building, run by much the same kind of people, run using the same board model, making all the same mistakes and failing all the same kids for all the same reasons. I can see a situation where Education Scotland loses its uh, inspectorate role but keeps a hold of all the other things that clearly doesn't have a clue how to manage and continues to matter them as well. I think the sort of the, what we actually needed to see if it was going to be taken seriously was something much bigger and much more ambitious. The thing that I advocate for in the book is I actually think the time is now for um, probably a new, it was called the National Debate back in 2002. Twenty years. I mean, I know, I know that the phrase "generation" is a bit of a disputed term in Scottish politics, right? But twenty years seems to me like a decent amount of time 
to be thinking again about the kind of things you might want a system to do. Hmm. It particularly seems a reasonable thing to me given those 20 years, given what's happened between, say, the year 2000 and the year 2020, and given what we're coming out of just now, I think it seems perfectly reasonable to suggest that maybe it's worth asking those questions and having those conversations again. And maybe it's worth doing them without the sheer bloody-minded cowardice that held it back the last time. Because ultimately the last time, um, while the ideas were great, and a lot of the, the work, a lot of the design even, I would still stand by. Um, the complete refusal to even countenance having any serious changes to what came at the end of schooling meant that any ideas about reform and all the rest of the stuff that came before were always going to be hamstrung. You were, ne- you were never going to get the, the effect you were looking for there. Um, so I'm of the view that actually the conversation just, there's, no, there's absolutely nothing to be gained, really, um, in the grand scheme of things, from a conversation about how do we constitute the board of the SQA, you know, which is ultimately where this is going to end up. At some point, there is going to be a set of meetings and consultations and documents about that kind of stuff, right? It's a waste of everybody's time. The conversation we need to have is much more fundamental, and it's one about big picture questions about the education system. Yeah. What is it actually for? Who? Is it, and this is the big one, who is it actually for? Because right now the education system is primarily for middle-class Scotland. That's what it, it, is, it is set up to protect the existing advantages enjoyed by the middle classes. And if that's what people in Scotland want to continue with, that's up to them. Hmm. But I think people who want to continue with that should <clears throat> at least be willing to say so. Should at least have the guts to say, you know, um, we want to keep the current system as it is, and we want to keep the the same sort of um, you know grading on a curve type system, and we want to you know largely keep a system in place that will mean that the poorest will be you know, five times less likely to get five A's, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, because ultimately they believe what the people in charge believe in 2020, which is that that is what justice looks like. They think it is completely normal, completely acceptable, therefore, for the richest kids to just automatically have better outcomes than the poorest kids and for the systems kind of wave that through. And that's what we're going to end up with still in five years and in 10 years with the current approach that they have to, to yeah. reforms. That is, we're, not, we're not going to get any serious distance away from that so long as, for example, we've already got the government now doing what the government did uh, 20 years ago, which is already tacitly kind of putting out the wee warrants going, don't worry, we won't change things too much. Exams, we've already had, Shona Robinson, already saying exams will remain part of the mix going forward. Now, don't get me wrong, <coughs> I am I'm not the kind of person who thinks that every kind of exam that exists is evil and should be removed at mm. all. But I don't think that's a matter for you know who, whoever happens to be the current education secretary, um, and the fact that they do think it's a matter that that's a matter for them shows you that this is at least as much as ever about politics. Yeah, and that concerns and, me. And you know that, that that's a running a running theme with many people we, we speak to on here is that the connection between politics and educational decision making, and what does seem to be coming through this 
this phase and uh, you know this is the the first the first phase of reform so ken's remit is is pretty narrow but interestingly what's happening in the conversations that we're having james is exactly what you've described it, it goes wider it can't mm. not go wider it's it's more than just what should national organize how should national organizations be constituted there is an appetite um i i sense a grassroots level um and certainly amongst young people to you know and there's been a lot of talk through covid that we wouldn't come out of it the same as we went into it i suppose this is an opportunity for the country um i would encourage everyone to engage in the consultation uh however that impacts the recommendations is is you know way beyond what i can imagine and then what people do with the recommendations yes yeah, this is the thing though so what's going to happen is the same as i mean i still remember for example like um remember when the government was doing its um what were they call them governance reforms oh yeah remember no and that was a thing right it was yeah. a few years ago by the way right it feels like lifetimes ago uh, but this was a whole thing, wasn't it? Governance reforms, that was going to fix everything. That was going to be, the consultation was going to be the first stage of reform, was going to feed into some other things. It was all going to get, it's all going to be very, very interesting. Um, and then the government ran a consultation on it. And then the government analysed their own consultation responses and their own, their own analysis, I can't remember the whole big Twitter thread on it, um, was basically just their officials going through each question, sort of saying, yeah, everyone tells this is a bad idea, by the way. Um, yeah, everyone says this is crap. Yeah, everyone said this, this isn't necessary, apparently. Yeah, and this just kind of went on and on and on. And then you got to the end of the government's position was, yeah, we're just going to do this anyway. Um, and the issue I think we're going to have with the current consultation is that even, I mean, again, you know, I'll, I'll, I've wanted to be wrong for like seven years now with this stuff, right? I'll be, I'll be thrilled to be wrong. But the government sets a very, very narrow remit. It gets a report back that says, well, here's the stuff within the remit and here's a whole bunch of other stuff. It looks at the whole bunch of other stuff and goes, oh, that's very interesting. We'll take it all on board and we'll never hear from that again. And it looks at the stuff within the remit. It finds ways to pick the bits it likes, nudge bits it doesn't like out the road, as it's done with the OECD report that very explicitly says to re reintroduce the SSLN, which they're just completely ignoring because it doesn't suit them politically. Um, the same thing happens here. And then what? You know, and then and then off we go. I I am admittedly, you know, a bit more um, confrontational on this kind of stuff. I actually think, um, and this isn't going to help you at all, but I actually think there'd be much, much more power in everybody refusing to engage in that consultation because it's so obviously constricted and it's so obviously set up to prevent further reform that actually. My concern is that what will happen here is the same thing that happens like to the EIS during the stuff all in the last year. You get around the table, but if you're the government and you get enough people around the table, you'll always be able to say, firstly, that whoever was dissenting, oh, well, they were, they were involved in the group, what's the problem now, you know? And you'll always be able to get a group that size to say roughly what you want, because you'll be able to kind of mitigate everyone's really hard opinions into something nice and soft and cosy in the middle. It won't upset anybody too much and all will go again. So... Yeah, maybe you end up with different, as I said, different organisations and different names. And hell, the SQA might even move out of that current building somewhere else, right? It costs a few million quid. Who knows? But see, at the end of the day, on this kind of model, the huge risk is not to, that that you know you come out of it without having recommended anything. The risk is that simply the same type of people end up running things. Fiona Robertson should have been sacked 
last year from the SQ8. But if you sack Fiona Robertson and replace Fiona Robertson with another Fiona Robertson, somebody else has just been cycled through the government's learning directorate, you know, um, and and we could both name the kind of people that we're thinking of here when I say this, right? The kind of folk learning directorate, education Scotland, they kind of level, floating in, maybe run the SQA for a little bit. We both know the kind of folk are going to be involved in that because it's Scotland, you know? Um, but I think actually what we need is, there are times, there are times when what you need is, um, you know, very um, almost kind of centre ground gradualist reform. Mm. And there are times when what you need is actually to burn a few things down. And um, I think Scottish education is at the, you know what, burn a few things down kind of stage. And I say that obviously, like, you know, I don't think for a second that you could reform the, the things that I would want to do to end of school assessment, for example, for like my subject for English are really radical. And I don't think for a second you could do it this year or next year, or probably even the year after that. I think proper reform of end of school certification rather than exams. Exams might be part of that at some levels for some subjects, might not be for others. It's the wrong line of thinking. The line of thinking is end of school certification. I don't think you could reform that in any sort of sensible, realistic, safe, workable way in any less than five years. And the five years would be an absolute minimum. I'd probably want 10. I'd want it as part of bigger, broader reforms. So I'm not saying, you know, just burn it all down in a sort of everything is rubbish, it must be destroyed and replaced tomorrow kind of mm. way. But I mean it in terms of like, this isn't about, or it shouldn't be about playing with a few of the structures and changing a few of the names or the job descriptions, or maybe we'll change the name of a particular course. I mean, like, that kind of stuff isn't going to cut it. It's what the government would love, I'm sure, but it's, it's not going to change anything. If it doesn't actually change the learning experience or, or the outcome um, for children, the young people, you know, and, and better equip their, their teachers to support them, then why have we, why would we bother? Yeah. You know, why, why yeah, go through exactly. all the, all the what's effort? Then, then what's the point? Yeah. Why not just look at it? Why not just say, well, you know what, actually, I mean, things are, pre are pretty bad, you know, for a lot of kids just now, but they're also fine for lots of other kids, and lots of other kids are the ones that make the most noise and the ones that matter the most. We can probably just keep ticking over like this if we feel like it, you know? If that's what anybody's interested in, why not just be honest? Well, it, interestingly, um, I, I don't know if you've ever tuned in any previous podcast. We've done a couple with uh, Michael Fullen, you know, world-renowned um, speaker on, uh, on ed educational systems, leadership, social change, and he he actually has, has done a lot of research that those that the system as is and Scotland's not unique in this kind of last few years of secondary education being a, a selective system for universities. Yes. Right. Um, uh, he, he argues that there's evidence there that even those young people are not necessarily best served by that kind of education. Yeah. System. You know that how how well rounded are these individuals? How's the stress levels? in those mm. years when they're going through the high stakes uh, terminal examinations, etc. Um, so I, I, I know that on paper, the examination system that's, that's evolved over decades and decades and probably not changed that much in some subjects, certainly my own maths, it's, it's one high stakes exam at the end of the course. Yeah. Um, I think only maths and Latin 
have that have that approach. Um, but even those that do well in that kind of system are not necessarily being best served yeah. by what school yeah. would offer. So my my subject's English, and um, I could, you know, I'll, I'll take a student and get them an eight higher English. If that's what if that's what you're needing, you know, if that's mm-hmm. if that's what you need to get in the unit, yeah, I'll get any higher English. I mean, English is, is the stats would hold, would you know bear out, you know, quite a difficult subject and all that. But I, I think they overcomplicate it sometimes. It's not actually all that difficult. And yeah, you know, one to one work or something, I'll get them an A, that'll be fine. Um in order to get them that A, I will need to not be teaching them to be as good as they could possibly be at my subject. Now, and this might be the, one of the, the things that I think we should probably be more open about in, in secondary education is the fact that we in Scotland and in other countries are probably largely the same, but we really are very, very, very obsessed with the idea that all subjects have to basically assess the same way. Um, and that for, because we have this ludicrous idea about but it's because of this stupid SCQF framework and everything being comparable across levels and stuff like that, you know. Um, so we get stuck in this idea that everything should be assessed in, in, in the same sort of way. And it leads us to a situation where, as I say, like people who are getting A's in higher English just now, I've had students, I've had classes where I've watched a student get an A in higher English and I've watched another student get a C, knowing fine well the student who walked out with a C is, is better. That if it was a case of me, of if I was sitting in a university and somebody said you need to take one of these two for an English degree and you're the one who's going to have to get them through it which one are you having either the one who's, taking, who's got the C because mm. they're better they're better at, at, at what English is actually all about but they're not as good at playing the game um, or they're not as good at the, at the ridiculous idiotic close reading paper that we make them all do and stuff like that you know um, so when you think about it that way yeah like even the students who are say walking out with an A for example in my subject that doesn't mean that they've been taught to be the best readers the be- and the best writers that they could conceivably be. It means that their teacher's done very, very well to show them how to jump through the hoops. You know, but that's all it really means. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it doesn't, it's not to guarantee the kids who walks out with the A isn't also a brilliant reader and a, and a fantastic writer. But the yeah. A in and of itself doesn't tell you that. The only yeah. thing the A can guarantee is that this is a student who can jump through the right hoops. They may also be brilliant at English, or they might be really, really lucky on a really good day, or they might be loaded. As the mum and dad paid for a tutor to be in two or three times a week, who basically just had them memorise everything they had to do to walk into the exam hall and write it down. Don't know any of that thing, of, of that asshole. Can't guarantee any of it. All we can guarantee is that that A tells you that student can jump through those hoops. Mm. But that, as you say, not only damages the system, but yes, it's potentially very damaging for those students. It's very damaging not just in terms of they could have been taught more, they could have been taught better, they could have had better experiences, but it's a problem for what it tells them about what education's for. Mm. And that that's that bothers me a lot that um because I remember coming through school and I never wanted to be a teacher um at all. But I remember sitting in fourth year and very, very much in fifth year, really, really bored. Feeling like I was basically sitting this is a place you were just going kind of to, to grind through, grind through the hoops and everything, and get the bits of paper. And everybody, you know, I, I was one of the you were meant to be getting five A students at school, so the expectation was that you would grind through them perfectly happily because that's what the school needed for its stats and all that kind of stuff. I really worry about 
that you know combines with all sorts of other additional pressures that kids didn't have when I, you know when I was a kid. I really worry about what our increasingly bad exam system teaches kids about the value of their own learning and the value sort of the value of themselves. I suppose you know yeah. what, what sort of intrinsic value there is to all this kind of stuff and and, and to who they are. Um, I worry about what we're what this what a system like this is doing to them um, and I see it a lot because I teach in a college so by definition I teach people I teach like higher national five as well as a few other things but by definition my higher class and my national five class are full of folk who haven't got a higher national five when they're in school mm-hmm. for some reason you walk into my, my higher my higher English class and you know for one of the questions I may ask you is if you're good enough to get a higher English why are you here because, you know, what's the problem? You know, you should, what, why you need to come to me? But we know what the problems are. We know that I'm going to have a bunch of students who have been ill while they were at school and missed a whole bunch of school. Yeah. We know I'm going to have students who've come through the care system. We know I'm going to have students who have been carers for family members. We know I'm going to have students who, have, who are disproportionately representing the poorest parts of the city. And we know that I am going to have people who have been very, very badly served by an exam system that was designed to benefit other people at their expense. And I read, I read something you wrote uh, relatively recently that, that fascinated me actually, because it, it seems a, quite a simple concept. However, it could be applied. It was about the, the scout system, you know, the way yeah. you got your badges, right? So, Aye. you know, why do we need them all to perform on the same day at the same time? Yeah. You know, if, you're good at, if you're good at English, you're, you're good at English and, you know, you, you can pass your, uh, you know, you can take your uh, driving test at a time drive, that suits you. Yeah, the driving test, I think, is the, is the one people can, can, can get their head around quite easily. You know, just think about the driving test and you say, mm. right, well, um, in order to make it fair, <coughs> we're going to demand that every single adult, because it's a driving test, does it on uh, the same day every year. Um, that's, how, that's how we're going to organise it. And see if you don't pass it that day, well, to hell with you, frankly. Um, you need to wait a year. And we'd be getting told that this is wildly unfair. You can't possibly treat people that way. That's a terrible thing to do. Um, and yet the driving test is, of all the tests that everybody ever sits, unless you find yourself you know, a, a forklift truck driver or in the military or something like that, I would mm-hmm. posit that your driving test is probably the most high stakes test you ever sit. Because we are giving you a license to throw a couple of tons of metal about uh, up to 70 mile an hour. And if you get anything wrong at any point, then you could very, very easily kill many, many people, including yourself. Massively high stakes. Mm. But that's okay to do it without, you know, grazing it on a curve. And that's okay to do it. Not only just not do it just the one time in the year, but students get to pick the time and they want to do it when they feel they are ready for it at any time. Um, and apparently that's okay. And if you need to reset it a few times or a few dozen times, ah, that's fine. You fire in, not a problem at all. Yeah. And then we turn around to kids, we turn to 15-year-olds and 16-year-olds and tell them, if you don't pass this exam on this one day, then, oh, well, tough. And there are lots of them for whom, like, it's not even as if you can just say, oh, well, you could reset it the following year, you can do X, Y, and Z. Not everybody can. Some students might feel things and might end up, say, in my college course and all that, try to catch up, but they'll spend an extra two or three years in education trying to get to the same point as everybody else. Yeah. Or they'll find that there aren't any places. 
or they'll find they've had to go and work. Like, there's all sorts of barriers that are put in place that are just insane. And again, we do it primarily to ration access to things. The reason that we don't need to ration access to driving licenses is because everybody can go and buy a car. But we have allowed the school system to become or to remain um, a device by which we ration people's futures. That's it. That is the big thing that the system does, you know. Um, and as you say, it's completely unfair. Now, if you had a system like say, the, scout, the scout badges thing, or if anyone's interested, like um, the more education-facing side of this is from the open badges. Anybody who's done these Microsoft courses and that will probably have yeah. backgrounds in this. And I remember open badges year, <coughs> so back when I was in Aaron, that was sort of kind of taken off. The idea was that you would have like um, awards that could be assigned and the, the metadata behind the badge tells you, here's all the information that they know, here's all the skills that they have, here's who's accredited it. It's essentially like you imagine like, see all the fucking, all that crap that sits behind SQA courses, all the unit specs and all that kind of stuff. It's that, you know, like the way that we, it's what we do with hires. It's just not done dig digitally. Like we say that the higher English is, and we have this vague, ludicrous idea that employers sit there and go, ah, yes, the, 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 the course content of the higher English, that's what I'm looking for for my employees, right? Mm -hmm. And it's nonsense. But even if they were, like, what they'd be looking at, they'd be looking at unit spec, assessment spec. That's about it, really, isn't it? About some information about who the SQA are and how the systems work. So you mm -hmm. put all that in the metadata behind the badges and you can have people going through their time and say in secondary school, certainly, I mean, I could do it through all school. But rather than being ground through an annual exam cycle that, if nothing else, by the way, just wastes a huge amount of our time. Um, how much time do you spend every year on bloody exam prep and learning questions and prelims and all that kind of stuff? Like, imagine taking that all out and giving it back to actually doing some bloody teaching. Um, within that kind of framework, if you've got the kind of badges approach where you could recognise an extraordinary range of learning and skills and application but the thing about it is that the way something like that can be used to take people from their existing interests and branch out from them using that kind of model as well that's the huge potential with it imagine you could actually build uh, someone's learning round about themselves that, that oh. is a radical concept listen yeah. that's that's probably a good point to finish this section of the podcast then james fad <laughs> We'll, we'll see how uh, the, the coming months and, and, and uh, you know, the rest of the year pans out, what recommendations come, what change we actually are up for as a country. Um, and then we'll hopefully welcome you back on in the future to reflect on that, the bits that we've got right and the bits that we've Very still good. to do. James, thanks again for your input in the podcast. Fascinating. Loads of topics covered, a lot of food for thought, um, and you didn't hold back at all, uh, as, as I'm sure listeners would have expected from you. So, um, But before we, we let you go, uh, we finish all our podcasts with, with the same three questions for our guests. So this, is, this bit's just all about you, all about James. So tell us about young James, what you wanted to be when you were growing up. 
Uh, not a teacher um, was the main <laughs> thing, um, to be yeah. completely honest with you. I, I wasn't really sure. I kind of wanted to be a lawyer for a little bit and then said it was kind of dull. Um, the one thing I really wanted to be, funnily enough, actually, I ended up being an English teacher. Um, the only course I didn't get into when I applied for university was journalism and creative writing. Right. It was the only one I got into my other four applications. I got unconditional for all of them. Didn't get into journalism and creative writing. Um, there was always a part of me that it was always English and was my favourite subject. There was a part of me who I think wanted to wanted to write. Um, and I was always actually quite drawn to kind of like non-fiction type of stuff, like um, even quite young, like travel writing and stuff like that. So I suppose right. if there was anything, it would <coughs> kind of be that, that I've kind of found my way back to a little bit, I suppose. Yeah, that's interesting. So that that's the one that initially uh, looked as if it was closed off to you, but you've you've managed to push, I, that, I, push that door I, down. By, by sheer chance and good luck and also by, you know, being a, never underestimate the advantage of being a white middle class guy in a country like Scotland because you get taken seriously very easily. So, like, I don't have any journalism qualifications or training, and I was and I find myself on the telly talking about stuff, you know. Um, but a big part of that is because of my background that you're just kind of automatically taken seriously. Yeah, that's a really fair point. Very honest of you. Well, listen. Speaking of writing, um, and and we know. That lots of people listening will have your book on their shelf, uh, myself included, to to plough through. But what, what have you been reading recently, either just for pleasure or for work? Um, reading just now, actually, um, some people would probably have read it, but uh, Clandestine in Chile by right. um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I've read a lot of this stuff, but I realised kind of recently I hadn't, um, I hadn't read that one, and I had it sitting on one of my shelves, so I picked that up the other day, and I've been kind of uh, reading it. It's, it's, it's Marquez. It's very, very good. Um, it's quite different, obviously, because of what he's trying to do with it. But um, for anyone interested in the, the Pinochet era of um, of Chile, or interested in Marquez's writing, um, or kind of kind of weird non-fictiony kind of style as well, it's uh, it's worth having a look at. Good. Easy, easy read. Like all Marquez, he has a bit of work involved. Yeah, but it's very it's very small. It's only about hundred pages long. Um, oh, okay. But it's very, very good. Great, great recommendation. Thank you. And so we we finished. You, you've offered lots, lots of uh, insight, thoughts, opinion, suggestions. Um, let's just close. Do you have a closing um, quote, statement, advice that you want to leave listeners with today, James? I, I mean, I, I'll just be that guy. I'll use one of the book. I'll, just, I'll use it from the end because um, somebody tweeted this. Um, it was yesterday. So they've been kind of going round their heads and. Uh, which is quite nice, obviously. So um, the, the the closing lines of my book are, we must do better, and I truly believe that we can. But most of all, I believe that our children deserve better than a society that is too afraid to try. Um, and which kind of, there's a, another, a wee line, a, a friend of mine, uh, Sean Bell, wrote a piece for, um, it was called Source, and just as it was closing. And one of his lines in that is, you know, we have no right not to try. Mm, that's kind of thing I would try to make things better and I, th- I just think that's a, a brilliant way to think about it you know we've got no right not to try to make things better for, for especially when we're talking about our kids I'm sure that'll resonate with everyone James thanks very much thank you thank you for listening folks we really value you taking the time and space to join us and we hope 
that you take something positive from it. We'd love to hear your reflections, so please get involved via Twitter or contact us directly by email. Thanks again, stay safe and take good care.